And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have Joseph Bartone. He is a screenwriter and filmmaker based out of Van Nuys, California, in the valley, as they say. Uh, I found him on Facebook, on a Facebook screenwriting group, uh, because he had posted uh, some questions regarding uh, his, the feedback he got from the Slam Dance screenplay competition. And I had been thinking about doing an episode about that competition as well as another competition because of the feedback that I got from it recently uh, and also just my general experience with some of these competitions. I found that the feedback has been unnecessarily cruel and unusually unproductive. Like I am all about constructive criticism but the feedback I personally received was just downright mean. And I got the impression that I wasn't alone. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Joseph today about that. Now, before we begin, I just want to say that I understand that this could come off as a couple of sour pusses. Oh, I didn't get in. It's not that at all. As a matter of fact, I've been doing this for 20 years. Rejection is the name of the game. It is what it is. This is about unnecessary cruelty towards people who are just trying to create an art practice for themselves. And at least that's kind of my mindset going into this. So if your knee-jerk reaction to our conversation is going to be, well, they're just a couple of loser sourpusses. They don't matter. Please don't participate in the discourse. Because we get enough of that as it is. That's kind of what I'm trying to get rid of, what I'm trying to have a commentary about. How do we get rid of that attitude? Because it's not constructive. It doesn't help anyone. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that today. And I'm going to talk about the feedback I received from the Slam Dance Screenplay Competition. We're going to talk about the feedback Joseph received. And I'm going to also touch upon one other experience that I had, possibly. We'll see. We'll see how the conversation goes. Uh, because over the pandemic, I did submit to a lot of competitions, which I don't normally do. Usually I just make the films myself. Or they end up shelved. Uh, but I, you know, as I'll explain in the podcast, I submitted to a lot of them. And I either lost them, which is fine, or I received really cruel feedback. And I'd very much like to tackle this subject. So please join me if you can uh, stay constructive and not just shoot us down for being a bunch of sourpusses. Thank you and on with the episode.
How are you? Good. You shouldn't smoke, by the way. Just want to tell you that from all your viewers. I can't smoke anyway. I have very severe asthma. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm sure they make some product that you could consume if you needed to. You know, there's an old Irish saying uh, moms would say to their daughters, never trust a man who doesn't drink. You don't know what his vice is. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I do. Uh, I, I think my my thing is wine. I've gotten into wine over the pandemic. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good and, one. Uh, we've been right. My girlfriend and I have been testing the Coppola wine. <laughs> nice, very good. Why not? Yeah, so. I'm with it. I understand that entirely. Yeah. So how you doing? It's good to meet you. It's really good to meet you too. I'm very excited about this. This is exciting. I I, uh, I like to talk about writing. Most people like to talk with me about filmmaking or music, and it's nice to talk about something a little bit different. And um, and you want to talk about festivals specifically. Um, and uh, uh, I've done a lot of research in that department. Uh, I I have much to discuss on that one. But the first thing I would like to say is, anyone that wants you to pay them so that they can tell you the secret to festivals is a scam artist. There, 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 there are very few secrets to festivals, um, and, uh, and I'm going to give it all to you for free. <laughs> Sounds like, like a productive episode. Yeah, there you go. I can't straight up tell you that like the only ones, with the exception of one, there's one exception, but the only ones that ever recognized me with an award was the ones that I went to every day and made it very clear that I was in that festival and I made them remember me, and then remember me, and then remember me again. That's right. And, and it's just, if I didn't show, never heard from them again. Sure. There was only one time where I didn't show, and they sent me a plaque in the mail. But that's very rare. Well, COVID, of course, everything was online, so it was a little bit different. But yes, I totally relate to that. Um, yeah. But would you like to know about me first? Do you want to just? I would love to know about you. Yeah, I, I read a little bit that you're from Rhode Island. Yeah, I am from Rhode Island. Um, so uh, briefly about me, uh, I was one of those in one of those uh, endearing punk bands and alternative rock bands throughout the '80s and '90s. A bunch of different groups, and you know, like many of us, uh, our band members went on to do great things. And of course, we didn't. We never got the contracts and. Um, Became a record producer for quite a while. Uh, played a lot through Europe and the United States, and um, at some point, like you know, around forty-five, I started to realize that writing songs about teenage lust was getting kind of creepy. <laughs> so, and I was, I was actually, um, I was actually recording an album for uh, a hip-hop artist named Spice One, who's in the Where They Now file. Um, and uh, and it was a disaster recording session. And I turned to my friend and I said, um, there has to be an easier way to make money. And he said, oh, yeah, go into film. They pay you twice as much and expect half the work, which is true. <laughs> so so I, went into, I went into film. Originally, I wanted to go into film to be a producer. And, uh, and I didn't really have a lot of contacts in film. So I, um, I decided I was just going to see, you know, if I can get in as the audio engineer and kind of work my way up that way. Uh, and so I worked nights. I worked nights at, uh, 
a bunch of places. And that story is a really interesting story. I wish we had time for it. How I got into film was very strange. But the, the upshot was I ended up working for uh, Technicolor uh, on the night shift and then finally moved to Warner Brothers in the day shift uh, doing mastering for film. Um, and then my con- then I was really excited because working at Warner Brothers is everything you might expect. I mean, the food's amazing. It's movie stars everywhere. You, you, you have lunch on the, on the back lot. It's really, really absolutely incredible. You get tickets to movies. They, they treat you fairly well. I mean, they treat you pretty well. And, um, but after lunch, you go back to your, your cubicle and you're in a room with 200 other engineers looking at a computer, you know, with the little time bar going across, you know, chomping on whatever thing you're working on currently. And, uh, it was maddening. So uh, I, I, when my contract was up, I didn't try to renew it. And uh, I came home and I said, okay, Heidi, you know, because she had worked there. My wife. <clears throat> I said, well, what do you say? Well, I should go back to recording bands. I'm like, oh, you know, music changed and I didn't. <laughs> so I have no interest in that. <laughs> and then someone asked me if I would do sound for one of their actor reels that they were doing. They were doing some little bit for an acting reel and they would ask, they asked me if I would come out and do that. And I said, sure. So I brought my gear out and I did sound for it. And that was a complete disaster. I was horrible. I was just absolutely disastrous. And I got home and I was so excited because I had not failed at anything so horribly in a long time. <laughs> so I said, this is very interesting to me. This is really interesting. Uh, it's not at all like recording music. Um, this is recording dialogue and stuff. And then I set out to do that. So I, I did that for, I, I still do that. I've, I've been doing that for about 10 years. Um, and, but while I was sitting there, it's a really interesting perspective being a sound person or being a scripty, a specific script supervisor, those two positions, because we are sitting directly behind the director and the DP in front of the talent, though we don't say a lot. We're very, you know, with our positions, we have to remain silent pretty much. And you're hearing everything. And you're learning so much about filmmaking. I never did film school. You learn so much. And you learn mostly from all the shitty friggin' directors that you sit behind. Bad director after bad director. Bad script after bad script. Bad actor after bad actor. And when you're really keyed in with the headphones on, you catch how poorly written the dialogue is. You catch how, how the actor didn't really read the part and understand that this is not a joke. This was a serious part or this was supposed to be serious and you just made it into a joke that the subtext is all gone. You learn so much from that perspective, but what not to do on set. And then I even did a movie with Rennie Harlan who did, um, you know, um, what did he do? He did a uh, cliffhanger with Stallone. He did Die Hard 2, you know, did those movies. Great director. And that was, we shot that in, um, in, uh, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And he's a great director. And I did learn a lot of stuff from, from Rennie Harlan. I'm not saying I didn't, but not nearly as much as I learned from bad directors. <laughs> so, and at some point, um, I said, I could do this. So uh, what happened was, 
I decided, I called up one of my friends who's a DP. And luckily being in, having been in the industry for so long, I knew a lot of people, crew members. I knew makeup artists and gaffers and lighting guys and, and all these people. And, you know, we had relationships. We're friends, bonding friends. And my best friend was and is a very good DP. And I, I said, hey, Jose, I, and he's also directed a few films. And I said, hey, Jose, um, I, want to, uh, I want to do a short film because I want to learn how to direct. And, um, and I wrote this thing called The Derailers. It was a 12-page script. Um, and I wasn't writing it for any intention of it being good. I was just writing some crap that my friends could say when they got to set. The only thing, but because of my experience on set, I knew, okay, film is locations. That's, that's the most key part. It's the part that most writers and directors forget, but film is more about the location. That's the absolute essential. So what happened was I walked into this bike shop where this person who was on the spectrum had owned it for 30 or 40 years and he had never cleaned it ever. And so it was piled with 40 years of junk and trash and parts. And when I walked into that bike shop in my neighborhood, I said, oh my God, an art department could never recreate this. This is like so visceral. So I wrote the short for that space and I talked him into letting me rent it for a couple of days for $600, which is nothing really. Um, and, and then I wrote my first few drafts and finally the final draft for, for that film, never really knowing what to do, never having written a script before. But I had been a songwriter for some 30 odd years. And so the dialogue portion was never a challenge for me because when you're a songwriter, the objectives are to write as simple as possible, but as poetic as possible. And you get into the habit of, ter- of selecting very specific words because of their poetry, their meaning and their meter. And if you do that over and over and over again, when you go to write dialogue, you have this canvas way of writing that comes directly from songwriting. The film I put together and I submitted to a bunch of festivals because my, my, um, my DP said, we should definitely submit this. And it won a crap load of awards to the point where like, I wished I'd actually written a decent ending because I didn't. (laughs) I was just writing some bullshit. Um, but I got Sean O'Brien, who's up in a bunch of TV shows, to, to be in it and stuff like that. And then they said, oh, Mike, you know, you have a, you have a knack at this. Uh, and, and that pretty much gets me up to here. Now I've written three features. And we're, we're doing one, we're shooting one of them in November, which is cool. And I've written a few shorts. And they've, they've taken a bunch of awards. And I want to talk about a bunch of awards and how that happens and why that happens and why that's good and bad when you ask me. But Absolutely. I think that pretty much covers it, right? Yeah. So we're establishing that you've been around a good minute. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> uh, and that's that's important too because, um, you know, I, I did a little intro before you hopped on here about how I found you on face on a Facebook screenwriting group 
mm-hmm. uh, there was a comment about the slam dance competition. Oh yeah, specifically the screenwriting competition, uh, and uh, it's important to to establish before we kind of go into that that we've we've both been around a long time. Uh, so you've been doing it more professionally. I've been doing it more independently while working as a freelancer here in the city. Um, You're a DP or a... I. I just full on production for production whoever guy. needs it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Uh, so I have like, I want to learn more lights, about that. everything. Yeah. yeah. I want to learn more about that stuff myself. Yeah. In, in, in New York, there's so many clients who just want videos produced, but they don't know how to go through a, a crewing process. So I, yeah. they just kind of hire me to do everything. And if I need yeah. a crew, I get a crew. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find some of my screenshots here. I'll take it to him. Yeah. I'll always edit. <laughs> no, oh god, that's good. All right, so just keep talking. So you got this this feedback. Uh, I didn't screenshot the actual feedback, that's okay. but um, you wrote. I'm wondering if a college course might be a better use of my time. I love coverage, but I'd like to know who is doing it. What are their interests? Where do they grow up? So, rather than reading their feedback, which, I mean, I guess we could do. I just don't have it. Uh, Why why was, uh, why, why did you go to those questions about it? What was it about the feedback? Well, you know, this, actually, this also plays into a lot of things in the industry. This really plays into, I mean, we're going to specifically talk about screenwriting in general. Yeah. Um, Okay. What is a director? A really, a true director is someone that can walk into a Coca-Cola commercial, uh, a half hour comedy episode, an industrial film, uh, a music video, given a set of circumstances and some kind of project and be able to execute that particular concept to the satisfaction of a client. Mm-hmm. I'm not a director. I'm a filmmaker. A filmmaker is a very different kind of animal. A filmmaker is a person that has a very clear and concise style, intent, and message. And they do not ascribe to the orthodox or to the standardized formats by which a commercial director would need to adhere to. Yes, it's true. We both have the same coverages. And we have to do this and the same angles and the same editing. Right. But what? the filmmaker is much more interested in his personal state and is not really interested in what the client has intention. This also applies to screenwriting. So there are two kinds of screenwriters and the, and this happens in the group a lot. I don't think the group's as aware of this issue as much as they could be. There are a lot of aspiring screenwriters and some of them want to be screenwriters for major productions major television shows, uh, major uh, lots like Paramount, Warner Brothers, etc. And other ones just want to, excuse me about that, other ones just want to write scripts and ideas that they would produce themselves. The formatting is extremely different. And the reason why is this. Back in the beginning of talkies, at the beginning of talkies, you know, roughly the probably by the 30s, certainly into the 40s, they began to see which films were selling more. 
And then these great writers, who they hired the best at that time, figured out, well, wait a minute here. These particular films all did very well. And these particular issues and events happened on very specific moments in the film. Remember, the silent film Napoleon is 35 hours long. Okay. So, so before, you know, before this period of time, it was a, just a wide open thing. You could, your film could be five minutes. It could be 30 hours long, you know? Um, so they began to standardize what the best script format was as a layout in terms of gross profits. Okay. Right. And that began to be taught in colleges, here is the format that works best. And then all those students who learn it, learn it as if it's gospel. And then suddenly over time, now people are absolutely convinced that this is the only way to write a script. And anytime they read something that does not adhere to that specific format, they get nervous or upset or frightened by it and say, that's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. That's not a good writing. Then there's all these other artists that come in. Painters, musicians, poets, uh, you know, playwrights, all these other people. Uh, you know, my favorite, of course, would, you know, would be Mame is a great example of this. Um, who have not gone to film school. And they just write what they see. If you were to read one of those plays, you would say, this is technically incorrect. Not just in terms of formatting, not just in terms of, but even in terms of what happens on pages, where characters come in, subplot points, all those things, all those things that that are written in how to make a good script great, uh, save the cat, all those things, they don't necessarily fit to that form. But yet great movies, really the truly innovative films, the ones that make you change your mind and think, have always come from the auteur. Yeah. I feel like, so... so I was I'm always not, in my point, but go ahead. Ask yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, not to compare either of us to David Lynch, but I feel like if, based on the feedback that I've been reading from, from this competition, if David Lynch were to send Mulholland Drive as a screenplay yes. under a different title, under an assumed name... Yes. They would, would have ripped rejected. it apart. They, yeah, they it would, would have, have been rejected immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. And, and this is true for a lot of the great films that we've seen. So what I'm trying to say with this point is the people that are reading the scripts are the people that are reading the scripts, the professors and, and the people in the industry for 25 years? No. They got their interns to read them, yeah. right? That's what they got. They got their interns. They got their protégés to read them. And their protégés are too early on in their lives they don't have enough life experience to be able to recognize what is good. They can only, in my, their mind, say what is bad. A, a, the, a great quote from one of my friends at Rhode Island School of Design said, the reason why I'm going to Rhode Island School of Design is so I could tell you why my art is worth millions and your art is worth shit. And, and it's, that's, that's the only thing you learn in art school. That's it. You know, it, whether or not it's good or bad is completely irrelevant. So what these kids do is that when you can send it into blacklist and I've done several, I've done a few different attempts with them and talked to many people, you are sending your script to someone 
that you have no idea where their qualifications are. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they have an upset stomach. Maybe they have to rush out the door. Maybe they just don't like what you're writing. And because they, they don't have life experience and understanding, and maybe they've never made a film, they're going to evaluate it exactly as they were taught it point for point in school. And that's the only reference they can do. They don't have another reference to work with. So this is really good news for people that want to write pop scripts. You want to write a superhero movie. You want to write a horror flick. You want to get it sold. Blacklist is awesome. You want to be a filmmaker you are going to get fucked. Excuse me. You are going to get screwed up. Screwed. That's just a reality. And this happened when I sent my script out to a bunch of different film festivals. And it ended up on the, on the finalists at the Bigfoot Seattle screenwriting competition, which is a very noted screenwriting competition. I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah. But it got four on Blacklist. And that's just one mm-hmm. example because it won a bunch of awards. It got a four on Blacklist. And that's when it came very apparent to me. However, I will say this much. It would be very hard for me to sell my script because, because no one could, it's not the kind of film I don't think, or my scripts, maybe I'm just being, maybe I'm, I'm just being self-deprecating or, or whatever, but I, I don't know if they could see the movie the way I see them. Yeah. Because it's not a particular straight genre. I wrote a horror movie which is called Worst Night Ever, which was the one we're talking about. It's a horror movie because at the end of Act Two, a monster appears at the end of Act Two, right? And I did that primarily so I could submit it as a horror film. Um, but that's not a horror movie. A horror movie has the monster at the beginning of Act Two or maybe even Act One, you know, mm-hmm. depending on where you're going, right? So, does that yeah, help? I, I mean, this is spot on. I, I feel like, You know, it, it it's kind of goes into why I decided to submit some of these writings anyway. It's because, I mean, for... Oh, it's, always, 20, it's always helpful. 20 years, I avoided it just because um, I knew that what I was doing really couldn't be sold as a piece of writing. It had to be made by me. Yes. But at the same time, how do you find people to collaborate with if not well, here's a very, submission? Yeah. Here's a very good, that's a very good question. So I wrote Brides of Jesus, right? The first feature. And along with that, I released a record. I I produced an album for it. I I produced a short film and two music videos as a website. It's a freaking amazing package. It won a crap ton of awards, but it's a $4.5 million feature. And it's, and we can get into financing and how that works in a minute. Um, So, it became pretty apparent that they weren't going to let me direct it. And um, so then I said, okay, well, maybe if I write a half million dollar feature. So I wrote Worst Night Ever, half million dollar feature. And then at the end of it, and it won a bunch of awards. I didn't go as far as I did with Roger Jesus. But at the end of it, I said, okay, well, now I need a half million dollars. And I don't have a half million dollars. So if the issue is they will not look at me until I've made a feature, despite my short films and my music career, I need to shoot a feature. So I called up my friends, acting friends. I said, look, 
if you will be in my movie, I will write a script specifically for you. Now, this is a very strange concept here because the, the film we're about to shoot is called Everything Will Be Fine in the End. It's got no stars. It's not going to sell. I am not writing it to sell the movie. I am literally writing it and filming it and putting my heart into it for the sole purposes of showing my abilities as a future director. I can do it for about $20,000. Now, before someone says, oh my God, $20,000, that's a crap load of money or not, depending on how you look at it. But if you're broke, you know, well, remember mm -hmm. this, remember this. If you were to open a coffee shop, you'd have to come up with 150,000. If you're going to open a, 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 a mechanic's garage, that's a quarter of a million. So in the big picture, low budget shorts and low budget features are not that much money. Where people go wrong is they tend to write scripts that cost $100,000 and shoot them for $20,000. Mm. Mine, most of it happens on the streets of LA. There's one evening shot. Everything is daytime. I wrote specifically with these very tight angles on that in an attempt to get this film made. And, and I'm thinking maybe I'm off your topic now, but we can get back on topic. But I think to answer your question, once you've written several scripts, you have to at some point write something that you can afford to make that has to be 85 minutes long. And you've got to figure out a way as an artist to make it viable and exciting and interesting because that 85 minute film is primarily going to be dialogue because that's what you've got to work. With. Yeah. But it can be done, you know, because, and I'm, I'm going to say this very clearly, whether you're a musician or a painter or a filmmaker or a camp or a photographer or whatever, you are an artist. And I think it's very important for, us to start using that term more aggressive, that you can write your own score. Certainly now you can. You can make a painting or a drawing. It, it may not be as good as, uh, say, a Rembrandt, but it would have the energy and excitement of a Kuntz, right? Right, right exactly. Because we are artists, and, and there is a level above that we have to transcend from our present form. Our present form is being a filmmaker or a writer or whatever. If you're just a screenwriter, you are losing a third or two thirds of your capability. Move up a notch, become an artist and figure a way to make art. And that's how your career is going to go forward. And that's how you're going to get your films made. That goes into the through line of this podcast uh, is how do you create an art practice for yourself in a field where everybody sees it as an industry with just a bunch of jobs. I mean, I mean, and it really, yes, screenwriting is a job, sure. Directing is a job, sure. You can be hired as a filmmaker and, and maybe try to get your vision out there, but I really want people to think it more like a personal art practice, whether yes. you're making money at it or not. It doesn't really matter. Absolutely. Uh, and boy, that's a hard message to get through to people. <laughs> right. Yeah, because people validate their artistic uh, endeavors by the monetary returns on that investment. And, and the reality is it's not true at all. You know, there, there's, there's uh, something, there's, there's something called the good and never was. I mean, there are people that I know 
in all through the art world personally that are great artists of all types that have never made a dime on their work. Let's talk about Van Gogh. All right. There's one who never sold a painting in his life. Well, he sold one to his brother. I think the guy wanted to be his rent. But he never sold a painting his whole life. And, and you know, are we going to say he was an unsuccessful artist? No. No. Because, because when you're a visionary, you are ahead of what's, what's current and going. And I make my money as a producer. I make my money as a sound mixer. I don't make my money as a filmmaker. But I would never do those jobs unless I was actively making film or music. I, that's where my focus is. And that's where my attention is going. And I am totally fine with that. You know, I, I've played, I've run jazz ensembles where there's been more people on stage than there were in the audience. <laughs> so, you know, and, but that's a good life because we have to live our best life, don't we? Yeah. And, and also, the message of my stories and my films are about broken people who find a way to survive. And, and I'm very interested in broken people. I'm not really interested in, in Batmans and Supermans and, and, and uh, action heroes. I, I would love to watch those movies. I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about really broken people that find meaning through suffering. Um, and then I, I continue on. I think that gets to your point, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're having a great conversation, I think. Um, but also, if we go into tangents, this is a low-stakes conversation, so... <laughs> um, I, I'm starting to see now how you came up with Brides of Jesus with your music background. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it definitely was. And, and in fact, um, this is a funny story about that particular project. Um, one of my, my best friend, who I was madly in love with, her name was Sandra Beauregard. Uh, way back, uh, probably in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, she was in a band called the Pussycats. And I was at the time in a band called, I think it was called the Cool Right House or something. And I was doing some stuff at Brown. I was the composer of Brown. Uh, we were very close. And then we, we split ways. We got into drugs. And we just disappeared for a while, both of us. And then I lost touch with her for decades, for a couple of decades. And then uh, she popped up because she had murdered her lesbian lover. And she had, she's now serving two life terms at the ACI uh, for the same count. Um, and wow. that's, a very, that's a very interesting thing because I don't remember Sandra as being a heroin-addicted murderer. I remember Sandra as the delightful, smiling, free-spirited, and extremely talented young woman. Um, and I visited her many times in prison. And, you know, the years have been hard on her. Um, and I think she's in a good place, to be honest with you. I think she's in a safer place. But I wanted to write Brides of Jesus as a love letter to her. I wanted to write a script that was a what if. What if Sandra didn't go down there? And she had this other life. And, and uh, yeah, there's, so there's a lot of me in there and a lot of my friends. All my scripts are really about me and my friends in some way or another. That's a great backstory. <laughs> well, trust me. I did Eric, not expect if, that. Eric, if you live long enough, one of your friends will shoot somebody. <laughs> oh, are you ki- You're not kidding. Uh, I have this uh, 
I have this poem I put up a couple years ago about how I got a Google alert about an incident. So I have a Google alert set up for my hometown in Maine. Oh, I love that. That's great. And that must be fun. Well, this one was crazy. In okay. June of like 2017, I got a Google alert for it. And a year before that, somebody I grew up with fueled up his boat, steamed full throttle to the middle of the Atlantic until the gas tank was dry, and then shot himself in the head. Wow. I got the Google alert for that a year later. Nobody told me. Sure. And it's just like... Was it someone you knew? Yeah, yeah. Small, small island town off the coast of Maine. We all know each other, probably related somewhere down the road. That is an amazing first act, by the way, yep. right there. That is, that is the most amazing first act I've just heard pitched to me. Oh. That really is the first 10 pages of a script. And, and you know how they found him is the, the Canadian Mounties uh, found him drifting off the coast of Nova Scotia, some island off the coast crazy like like a couple months later eric that's a that's a first act that's an amazing first act right uh, there i'm very sorry you lost it friend but i understand it there's something though about like doing a what if i love that like you did a what if with her right wouldn't it be great yeah. if there was a what if if what if he hadn't done that how would have his kids turned out that kind of thing um you know I just wanted to tell you about your film. Uh, this Catherine actress that you have. Yeah, Catherine Jubila. She's the, great. Oh, thank you. She could hold up a feature without a single word if she wanted. To. Yeah, yeah, she's quite talented. talented yeah. Uh, anyway, I just. Wanted she's to a screenwriter. <laughs> oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, but no, I feel like a lot of the our philosophies here are, are kind of like coinciding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and that, that was the thing, too, going back to, like, the feedback, which, which kind of started this thing off, is the screenplay I'd submitted to that same competition was about growing up on an island off the coast. Of Maine. Not, of Maine, not belonging. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it very much wasn't my island. It was their island. Um, and this was read by somebody who's never been to the East Coast, probably. Absolutely. Just the gist I got from the feedback. You, you can absolutely correct. Yes. And so how are they evaluating it? And they're evaluating it probably very well, exactly as their teacher told them to evaluate a script. Oh, an A-plus evaluation from an academic standpoint. Maybe. There you go. Right. Yeah. But, it, but is it, you know, the, but, but there's a literature issue going on here that they can't grab. You know, my favorite poet is Charles Bukowski. You know, Mine too. Most, yeah. Mo, most literary academics would put him at the bottom of the list. And yet I can tell you that Charles Burkowski has done more for the music and screenwriting world in terms of teaching young people how to write and how to think than any of those other poets ever did. We, you know, nobody reads Yeats anymore, but we do read Bukowski. <laughs> hands down, hands down. And, you know, I, I went through that conversation i did an mfa in writing a couple of years ago at sarah lawrence college not a single person that's there a good school ever read bukowski wow they i'm like does anybody here not even his novels and they're like no nah, we don't he, he seemed like a misogynist i'm like that doesn't matter but, yeah dead. he is a misogynist 
yes, I'm there. Yeah, I'm, what is that? Dead. I got it totally. But yeah. and and I'm like, I'm a fucking fanboy. Like the next time I go oh. to L.A., I'll probably you know go to some of these places he he talks about. I've got a first edition post office. Like, I am a fan, and to come across all these people who claim to love writing. And and not have any knowledge of this guy whatsoever. Well, be, you know, just... the thing about Bukowski was, and this is this is why I like him as a screener. Is you know he's absolutely at the core of the truth. That's what he wants: the unvarnished truth. And and what's when you look at films, even like uh, Barfly, which he wrote for Mickey Rourke and Faye Dunaway. Mm -hmm. There's no beginning. There's no first act, and there's no third act. There's just middle. All the way through, and and this is true for his his even his novels. I think the first line in Women is later she called me back. That's like the best friggin' first line of every novel I've ever read in my life. You know, <laughs> right? There's no beginning, and 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 I, that philosophy of his life, I understand that. You know, and and uh, so when when my when you're making a a personal film like yours, for instance, you're talking about a slice of life and a slice of time. Yeah, and there is. A backstory and there is what happened after and you can use other ideas but we'll, let's focus on what's actually happening in this moment and you know and 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 that's what i learned from the group yeah and that's a good way to put it too is why can't we just have more slice of life not that i'm not following a format because i'm very very brainwashed by film school to three X, but at the same time, like I tend to prefer experimental work where they are throwing out the, oh, we, we don't need to end it. We'll just stop it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's very, yeah. I mean, it's very risky, but you know, look at films like kids, you look at, um, Oh, kids. You know? Gosh. There you go. A lot of films like that, you know, the ones that we really love don't follow these formats, you know? Um, I I've like watched rhythm, Naked. Yeah, I think yeah. I've watched Naked eight times now by Michael Lee. Have you seen that one? No. Oh my God. Oh, let me write it down. <laughs> oh my God, Eric. You're gonna give me some some some. Naked stuff by Michael Lee. Michael Lee is this yeah. indie filmmaker out of England. Uh, he gave birth to like Gary Oldman and Tim Roth and all these people. Naked in 1993. That's absolutely brilliant film. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and and the I, I I can't can I spoil it now? I don't know. I can tell you, but like. But there is no ending, yeah. literally, <laughs> and that's, and that's, that's what my makes the film <laughs> exceptional, in my opinion. Mm. But we're talking about festivals, okay? Mm. So let me get back at the festival thing real quick, so you can edit this part in. This is important, okay? Oh yeah. All right. Sure. You're a young screenwriter or filmmaker. You're looking at all these festivals, and the first thing they're going to tell you is the only festivals worth. Uh, Submitting to our Sundance, Austin, uh, Tribeca, um, what's the one in uh, Toronto, yada, yada, yada. There's like five or six out there. It's, you know, slam dance. Okay, correct. And everything else is not worth shit. And every film festival is a scam. And they're little friggin' picayune film festivals around the world. All of that is true. But. Let's really examine what's going on in this. That little town in Istanbul or in Romania or in London or in Italy or in Ohio 
that's run by a guy like you or a guy like me, yeah, he's making some money on it. But let me tell you something. You couldn't pay me enough to watch a thousand friggin' five minute videos. <laughs> you couldn't. Yeah. And when the submission fee is $25 or $50, whatever the case may be, like you couldn't, you couldn't pay me to watch that shit. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll get to how to get it cheap in a minute, but just in general. So the thought that these people are making money off of this is insane. There are incredibly easier ways to make money than running even the scammiest of film festivals. <laughs> you know, I used to, a couple of years back, I used to volunteer with several, um, and all of them, if they were lucky enough, were breaking even. Absolutely. And it's just, I think the only one that was doing relatively well was New Filmmakers New York because they got the venue for free. Right. And let me ask you, what were they paying the people to review those, the, those films? They didn't pay me squat. They were. Yes, they're volunteers. Yeah. Right. So so the, there is there is no money there. So the concept of doing this all for money is crap. OK, so what are we left with? We're left with people with a lot of passion. OK, now you I won an award in some little festival in Madrid. No big deal. That's not that's not going to change the needle. I win 35 awards in cities all over the world. Now, when I'm talking to content creators, managers, agents, this project has international appeal. Yes, maybe it only reached five people in friggin' Bucharest, Romania, but it also reached five people in Naples, Italy, and five people in Egypt, and five people in, in Bulgaria, and five people in New York. And you and you are building your brand. That's where it's important. That's really the litmus test of your script, and your you now now how now Joe how do you is it you can afford this? Are you some rich guy? No, no. Here's the <laughs> trick: when you go to submit your film or your screenplay on Film Freeway, before you do, go to their promotions page and take out. Well, you're going to join the gold membership anyway because that's the way to afford it. But beyond that, take out a $10 ad saying that I'm going to be submitting this project to all these festivals to, uh, soon. And in 24 hours, they will start coming in. For the next two weeks, you, your inbox will be crammed with discount codes of 50 to 80% off submission fees. Only choose the ones that are IMDB listed. So you have to go through each one and put type in the name and see if it's there. Don't bother with the other ones. And I guarantee you what would have cost you $1,000 will only cost you $200. And if you have a budget of $200, stop there. That's a solid strategy. I'm going to extract that as a clip. Love it. Love it. Such a good idea. I wasn't sure how to use those ads, to be honest, because I ran it once years ago and uh, when Film Freeway was still in its early early form. and There's just a $10 really one that you need to. Yeah, That's yeah. all it is. It's, it's, an email, it's part of an email blast. And also send it on a Sunday night or, or a Monday night so that it gets your inbox. on. A, on don't send it on a Friday night because yeah. it's not going to help you. But I just – it's something about, too, like – 
Oh, just look at the ones that are verified on, on IMDb. Yes. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, because what you want is, is, that, is that kit. In fact, I, I've kind of stopped updating my IMDb because now it's looking a little grotesque. <laughs> I, I, after like 20 friggin' awards, you don't really need any more awards. Right. That's, that's just the reality. You know, at this point, you need to do something else for your career. But I will say, and this is interesting, because you, you work in films, so you understand this entirely. You, you work as probably a documentary guy or, or a camera guy or a production person, right? Yeah, I like everything. Yeah, I know. You do everything. everything. Okay, yeah, you yeah. got this. But, but you know you're a writer in your heart, right? Mm-hmm. But they see you as the everything guy. You're the PA guy that crews up. You're the, you're the guy that, that moves the gear. You're the guy that orders the fucking crafty, right? They don't see you as a creator. However, and that's my situation, too. As a sound mixer, it's like, oh, he's just Joe the sound mixer. They didn't know I was a musician. They had no idea I, I produced those records. I was just a sound mixer guy. When I started winning those awards, suddenly all of my contacts saw me as a creator. And now I'm producing feature films for them because I have both sides. It's really important, even in your career as a crew member, a sound mixer, whatever, to create content, to write these things, to make these shorts, because it directly impacts my bottom line. Oh, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the word that you dropped earlier, branding. People need to worry worry about branding themselves as a creative. The technical stuff, they'll always, clients will always use just the technician doing a job for them because that's how they cheap out. But like, if you really want, if your end game is to really get financing to bring the bring something complicated to fruition, you have to brand yourself as a successful right. creator. But even that with the clients, I'll say this much too. I get better clients now because now the new clients see me as a technical person who understands the creative process. Mm-hmm. And and they trust me more with more advice and more more authority and more um uh more more responsibility. And, and and it directly impacts it. And I get better clients now because they say, oh, this is Joe. He's a sound mixer and he's a filmmaker. He, in a, and we can have that conversation. Yeah, I once had a client where um, I'd initially got hired to shoot and edit video parts of this guy's podcast. And at a certain point, he asked me to start looking at each thing I did for him as one of my own short films. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting request. And I didn't know what to do with it for a while. And at one point, we had Chuck Palahniuk on as a guest. And Chuck started going into how you can use language. Some sentences will be your close-up. Some sentences will be your medium shot. Some sentences will be your wide shot. Yeah. But all in language. And so I just started <laughs> I started cutting close-ups, medium shot. I just started fucking around with all the cameras that we had around him. And that was probably the first risk I took with a client where I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to, as he says close up, I'm going to go to a close up. As he says medium shot and right. he's you using start, yeah. language as he's yeah. describing it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, and it's just. It's very impactful that way too. Yeah. And it was such a, a welcome invite. Eric, treat each episode like a short film. Just do what you want. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. And and I wouldn't have know. been invited you know, to do that even by so on, many. Ride to Jesus, originally I, in the script, it called for a lot of animation, and I couldn't afford an animator. So I had Jose said, look, just send me 24 frames at a time, because that's all I can fit on my iPad. I opened up Procreate, and I started 
drawing graffiti on each of the the the, uh, the frames one at a time. I actually had to I had to read the Pope Create manual and then figure how to do it. And I'm just going to draw graffiti. I'm not an artist. I'm not a painter. I do a little sketching. It's pretty shitty. But the point, as I realized, is that when I put that pen to that image and draw a line, that's my line. And and the film came out, the short film came out with some amazing, in my opinion, and rightly so, <laughs> and I'm just kidding, uh, a, a really fresh animation that fit the theme very well. It's crudely drawn, but it's me. And this is a particularly, uh, remember Irma Veep, the movie, the, the French film? Ooh. <laughs> Can you spell it? Irma Veep, E. R-M-A-V-E-E-P. This is a classic example, by the way, of non of a of a completely messed up screenwriting. It's literally about the behind the scenes of making this indie film in France. And it's friggin' brilliant. And it, you're gonna love it. It's absolutely, but it doesn't fit any of the storm, none of the formats and everything. And it has all hand-drawn animation. All, all you know, it's all done by the filmmaker. So all that Pretty animation good. in the Brides of Jesus was just you on your iPad. Yes, that's amazing because I thought yeah. that stuff looked so, totally rock yeah. and roll. Thank you, I thank loved you. It. Yeah, right. So yeah, so Jose would be editing and, and I would be sitting there as a director, and he would just send me twenty five frames at a time, twenty four frames because that's all I could fit. And then I would draw them and I would send them back to him, and he would import them into into the session. That's cool. Yeah, I um, I I, I noticed that. So I'm like, that stuff looks really professional and really good, and uh, it it it's it definitely had an alternative rock vibe to it. Right. Well, that's because, you know, you and I grew up going to band. Well, I played, you probably went to a bunch of shows, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I usually try to go to the, so in Portland, Maine, we had the alternative rock station, WCYY, and they would always bring you, bring bands out for free. And we had this town square, so better than Ezra would oh, play yeah. it, Bare Naked oh, Ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about, what about the I local? I always just went to those. Did, did you go to the local club scenes at all? or? Mm-mm. Because the ferry schedule to the island I lived on didn't coincide. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so you missed all that. Wow. Yeah, afternoon you're, you're, shows only. <laughs> you're, you're, you're like, you're like the, the college kid in the late 60s that was stuck in Texas. <laughs> you know, I always say that Maine is the Texas of the Northeast. <laughs> it just passed you by. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay, though. I still got a killer music collection. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any more questions? No, I, I mean, at some point we should do another one about your your career at Technicolor. Oh yeah, Technicolor <laughs> and Warner Brothers. My um, God. No, you. And here's the part. Here's the part. Eric and love. I started in the porn industry. I got into film. That's fine. In the porn industry, and it's a it's a true story. It's an amazing story. How I went from being a music producer. To, to absolute bottom where I was about to lose everything and I ended up uh, at, at, at a, as an editor at a porn house because it was the only place I could get a job. I, I applied for a job at Ralph's Market as a bag boy and they wouldn't take me because of my resume. Did they pay uh, well? Uh, it paid fine. And it was the worst job of my life. Okay, It was literally, Eric, the worst job of my life. I was once in college an assistant janitor where my job was to walk in and scrub the shower stalls the homeless had used to kill all the lice. And I had to go mm. in a hazmat suit. That was a better job 
than editing porn. And I did that job for five months to keep myself alive. And then they fired me because they knew that I did not like the job. Mm. And I remember driving home from that crying, crying, because I had just been fired from the worst job I'd ever had in my life. I went from working with, I'm not exaggerating, working with U2 and the Rolling Stones at what well, was then Foxborough Stadium and Gillette Stadium down to this. And I was absolutely devastated. But I applied for a job on Craigslist. We need an audio engineer who has experience in video editing to work in a transcription company called the transcription company at the time. And I applied and I walked into there. I got an, uh, in an interview and I said, I'm going to be honest with you. The only video editing experience I have was at this porn company. You can call and verify that. And they fired. And she said to me, don't worry, Joe. Everybody in Hollywood starts in porn. that's great that's great that's a good story yeah we should uh we should follow up i think you've got more than more to tell oh my god yeah i can tell you well thank you so much eric i appreciate it so that was my discussion with joseph bartone the creator of a short film that i watched on film freeway called uh, brides of jesus it was an excellent short film i really enjoyed this conversation i thought he had a lot of great advice for filmmakers and screenwriters Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.